0: Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host Camille Mojica. This week we're gonna talk to Kelly about part of a big project she's currently working on that we can look forward to maybe seeing the results of in January. Then Ben and I are gonna flip through the candidate filing sheets and we're gonna talk about some old names, new names, and maybe some trends. Stick around. One thing that's talked about a lot when it comes to the justice system and the people that are involved in it is recidivism rates. And one of the main questions that people ask is, how do we keep people from coming back into the courtroom? Well, this is actually part of a bigger story that Kelly has been working on. And she joins us now to talk about how there are some ways the judicial system is actually trying to address that. Welcome back to The Cape Fear Run, and I'm here with Kelly Knoyer. Camille Mbohica. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Cammy. In the newsroom, actually, for the past week or so, we've been talking about the concept of different types of court. I've actually been learning a lot since we've been talking in the newsroom because I did not know that different types of court existed. Can you tell us about what you've been doing at different types of court?
1: Okay. Um, okay, so just to preface this, I'm doing a long-term project right now which should be out in early January, so tune into the newsroom. But the idea behind it is that I'm trying to explore where homelessness intersects with the criminal justice system. Okay. So I started out just sort of wandering into random courtrooms. Uh, Honestly, I just wandered into like courtroom 320 in the courthouse to see what was going on. And I was watching all these prosecutions, seeing people plead guilty to various things. And then I started talking to public defenders and they were like, you should really start going to first appearances because that's where we see a lot of homeless people end up going through cases. And so I did. They said to go on a Monday because that's usually when you'll have a whole bunch of people who got put in jail over the the weekend who can't afford to post bail. Okay. So, on a Monday, when you go into court and you go into first appearances, you'll see a lot of people who come from a pretty desperate background because they were not able to plead out or they were not able to post bail and get out. So, um, and it'll be for anything, you know, maybe it's because they actually commit a robbery or something, but for the people I was interested in, it was often an open container. Um, in public or, you know, like of alcohol. Oh, okay. Cami made a confused look, which I, is why I explained. I
0: was like, Tupperware?
1: <laughs> Tupperware. <laughs> you just got some casserole and it's steaming things up. No, it's uh, if somebody has like an open alcoholic beverage. Okay. Uh, very small level possession of marijuana, things like that, or uh, even just trespassing, which can be that you were sleeping in a doorway you weren't supposed to be in. Mm. Um, sometimes you'll just see a resisting a public officer Uh, which that'll be if somebody's not cooperating immediately. So, hey, move along. Oh, I'm I'm busy. I don't want to do that right now. Then they might get arrested and they stay in jail because they can't afford to post bond. So started seeing those cases and I was interested in seeing what happens to those folks because the court system is one of the only places where some of these individuals will interact with the public, official, it's one of the only places where some of these individuals might touch on uh, government. Okay. You know, yeah, they oftentimes don't have access to some of the basic rights that a lot of us do. Even if they qualify for disability, maybe they don't even have an ID, oh. so they don't have the ability to pursue some of the things they might be entitled to under our system. Okay. Um, so this, this while it's, you know, difficult to end up in court, has the potential to be a touchstone that leads to positive change. Okay. Whether that's actually happening or not is what I'm kind of trying to get into. And I think that it really depends on how severe of consequences you're facing, because what I've found is that there are two diversion programs. There's actually three and soon to be four diversion programs, but I'm just going to focus on two of them. Um but you have to have a certain maximum sentence. You have to be facing a certain amount of jail time in order to qualify for these programs. Okay. So if you're trespassing, you don't qualify. That's not a severe enough consequence. Okay. Now what would be something that does qualify? Um if you have a higher level possession charge. Okay. Or if you're caught stealing a higher value item, you mm-hmm. know, if you're caught stealing a candy bar or a small amount of food, that's like a very low misdemeanor and you might just face 20 days in jail max. In order to qualify for empowerment court, according to the judge I just interviewed today, Judge McGee, you have to be facing a max or a minimum of 45 days in jail, which is a second degree misdemeanor, I believe. Okay. And in order to qualify for drug recovery court, which Judge Faison is in charge of, you have to be facing a minimum of six months in jail. Um, Oh, the reason for that is because they want there to be kind of a looming consequence if you drop out of the program. I see. For drug recovery court, I think that they have kind of a lesser barrier for uh, empowerment court, which is focused on mental health.
0: Okay, so drug recovery court and empowerment court, are they the same thing or are they completely different?
1: They operate very similarly. Uh, and actually, people in both of them have drug problems a lot of the time. Okay. Um, Often folks who have serious mental health issues, mental illnesses, will self-medicate with illegal drugs. So they might have issues with illegal drugs at times. But it's a little bit different. And the way people get chosen for one quarter or the other, It's kind of just up to caseworkers. There are caseworkers who manage each of the court systems and they'll look at different people who've been referred and say, oh, I think this is a good fit or I don't think this is a good fit. Oh, okay. And my understanding is that you go to drug recovery court if the primary problem that you're dealing with is that you're addicted to drugs or Mm -hmm. alcohol. Okay. And you go to community empowerment court if the primary issue that you're facing is your mental health or mental illness. Okay. So maybe you still have drug problems. But that's not the main thing that's your problem in life, and it's maybe more of a symptom than the actual problem,, okay, causing your it. instability. So that's kind of how they're different. And um, there's a, a lot more people in drug recovery court. It's also last it's existed for a lot longer. Mm. Community empowerment courts only existed for a year and a half. But drug recovery court has existed for almost 20 years, I think. I mean, oh, really? Actually, I think it started in the 90s. It's been decades. okay. Okay,
0: so how did you wind up in these courts though? From the main court, now you're in these two different ones.
1: Well, okay, so I've been doing a lot of research on the type of people who end up homeless and what their problems are. And anybody can tell you who touches on homelessness that a lot of people who are homeless have mental health issues. And a lot of people who are homeless have drug addiction issues, Mm. or they have both. So these, it seemed like a natural fit or it seemed likely to me as well, that people who are unhoused would end up in these two court systems. Hmm. And that is true. Both of those systems, from what I understand, about half of the participants, sometimes more, sometimes less, uh, are dealing with housing insecurity in one way or another. So that is a place where the justice system is maybe interfering in the lives of people who are unhoused, maybe for the better. Okay. What happens if they aren't qualifying for those programs or not getting referred to those programs is that the justice system is maybe interfering in their lives in a more harmful way for their for their stability. Okay. So if you get put into empowerment court, uh, you have a caseworker, you have a parole officer whose job is to set you up with housing and mental health services and to make sure that if you do fall off the track, instead of going to jail you go to the healing place and go to detox. I watched that happen when I went to court today. Mm. Um it's it's Friday, December 15th, and so I went to empowerment court today and I witnessed that for one of the individuals there. He had tested positive for fentanyl in the drug screening earlier that day and they said, "We're really worried about you. You're clearly falling off of the the wrong on the wrong track." And this is the first time we've heard from you in a couple of weeks. We're so glad that you came into court today because that shows mm. that we haven't completely lost you. We're going to look at finding a spot for you in the healing place today. And so they kept that person there and they called the healing place and they got him a bed there that day.
0: Hmm. That's
1: that's the way that they dealt with an with a relapse in empowerment court. Okay, You see kind of similar in drug recovery court. I think the consequences can be a little bit different. They for- treat it. Yeah, for drug recovery court. Um, But it's similar, it's like, you've made a mistake, you're gonna learn from this mistake, I'm gonna have you write an essay to talk about how you've grown from this experience, and we're gonna take another step forward and try and move on and improve your life and get you back on the right track. It's a very human approach. Mm. And also, the thing that I've found really interesting is that both of these courts are actively doing the case management and stabilizing the lives of the individuals who are participating. So. They'll come out of jail and immediately get linked up with the with the healing place or with link or with other community services. And then after they leave some of those immediate intervention organizations, they end up in a halfway house. And all that way, as they're moving from one step to the next, they have a parole officer who is making sure that they are there the whole way for drug recovery court. um, I'm calling it. that; It's actually recovery court, but it used to be drug court. So drug recovery court for them. Uh, they will not allow you to move unless you're moving into something that the court considers acceptable, stable housing. Okay. So if you are in the healing place and you don't have a place to go, guess what? You're staling, You're going to stay in the healing place. Until you find somewhere. Until you find somewhere. And we're going to help you find that place. Mm. So to me, watching this as an outsider and as a reporter who covers homelessness and housing a lot, this seems like an interesting way for the court system to intervene in a crisis when a person is at the rock bottom and help them get on their feet and get into stable housing when they've lost that.
0: Oh, that almost made me cry. It's pretty cool. Okay, um, but like anything, there sometimes might be some flaws or
1: gaps in the system. Are you, are you seeing any of those? Yeah, I mean, the, the obvious one to me is people who aren't high enough level offenders. I was going to ask you that earlier. Yeah, the only people who end up in these court systems are people who are on parole. So hmm. I've seen plenty of homeless individuals go through the court system. And, you know, these are folks who have been found guilty of trespassing dozens of times. Okay maybe a dozen times in a year or more Mm. which is not a great use of our jail resources right you know it costs like a hundred or a hundred and fifty dollars a day to keep somebody housed in jail Mm. and this is somebody whose crime was not having a different place to sleep you know yeah and we have a lot of folks who are in that situation so seeing this there's one individual who i saw come in The charges she was facing was larceny for stealing $5 worth of food and trespassing because she was in a gas station she wasn't supposed to be in. Okay. She's faced those charges more or less over and over and over again. I heard that said by the judge and the assistant district attorney and by the public defender. We've seen this person a lot of times before. It's always a charge that's about this low. She got out on uh, time served because those are such low-level offenses that the maximum sentence is 20 days. She had been in jail for three days, so she got sentenced to time served, three days, and she was out free, not on bond free to go back to being in the streets, um, with no further intervention. It seems like the only way to be connected to resources by the justice system, as far as I can tell, is through the parole system. So if you aren't committing high enough levels of crimes, you don't end up getting connected to those services. And the problem with being put in jail when you're unhoused is that you don't have a safe place to keep your things, So you might lose everything that you have, every measure of stability that you already had, because your stuff got all moved or rained on or stolen while you were in jail for three days. Mm. So it can be destabilizing for people who are committing low level offenses to end up involved in the justice system.
0: Have you spoken to anyone that works at these two courts about that?
1: Yes. And I think that the problem that I'm seeing in the court system is that it's very siloed. um, To be frank, the judges play the role of the judges. The assistant district attorneys play the role of the district attorneys. Mm. You know, the public defenders play the role of the public defenders, parole officers or parole officers. Everybody is fulfilling their role. And the gaps between those roles just don't get filled because everybody goes, well, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. So... Why would I do that? Mm. So Um,
0: there's not like a lot of collaboration or communication throughout the whole thing?
1: I think there is a lot of collaboration and communication, actually. And I think that where the law is setting them up for success and where the law is giving them the ability to be responsive to these needs. They are filling in those gaps. But okay. when the person whose job it is to connect people to services is the parole officer, and there are a lot of people who are never put on parole because they're not committing high-level crimes, okay. that means that the justice system isn't necessarily responding to the needs of those low-level offenders, which makes me worry a little bit. And this is this is just hypothetical, that we're waiting for it to get worse before it can get better. I was going to say, because...
0: So you said that she had been in for that same offense over and over again.
1: Yes. When I was in Oregon, um, and this is a different court system, but it's the same idea. Yeah. Uh, I went to the opening of community court in Sweet Home, Oregon, and that court system, rather than being like ongoing accountability, it was here are all of the organizations that need you need to connect to in order to succeed in life. There were people there who had been in for trespassing hundreds of times hundreds and hundreds of times uh if you go and look at data analysis uh, Mm. that some reporters have done um in eugene oregon we ran an analysis 25 percent of the arrests were of unhoused individuals the same people over and over again low 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 level offenses small amount of drug possession just enough for them to use that's it um Mm. over and over and over again just clogging the court system with people who are really just in really desperate situations and really need help. Mm -hmm. So how do we help those people? That's kind of my question, as I am trying to dig into where the justice system is touching the homeless population and what could be done better to try and serve people who are in dire straits.
0: Well, Kelly, I know we're looking forward to more reporting from you. You said maybe there's a newsroom coming?
1: Yes, listen in January. I do understand, I also want to say, it shouldn't necessarily be the court system's job to fix this, because that's not what court is for. <laughs> you know, that's not what is supposed to be justice necessarily, is housing people who are homeless. Like, that's that's part of the reason that it's not succeeding in this goal, because mm. it's not built for that. It's a different system for a different purpose. But it is where these touch points are happening. So I'm curious about how we could build solutions into a system that's already getting involved in these people's lives. Brain food. Yes. Tune in in January to hear my my findings.
0: Thank you, Kelly Kinoyer for being on the show with us this week. You're welcome. It's Friday, December 15th at 4.07 p.m. when I am recording this voiceover. And Ben and I recorded this segment at 3.09 p.m. just about an hour ago. Today is the last day for potential candidates to file for 2024 elections. So, even though it's Friday, it's not 5 o'clock yet, so there may be some updates after this episode airs. But in the meantime, Ben and I look at the current list of candidates, and we're going to talk about them. Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shockman. Hi, Ben. Hi, Cammie. Today is Friday, December 15th, and at 5? Is it 5 p.m. today?
2: It is at 5 p.m. today. We are recording this. My watch is wrong, but it's around 3 o'clock.
0: <laughs> so there's two hours.
2: There's two hours to go. So... Keep it as a caveat. There could be some surprises after we record this, but uh, we are talking about filing for the twenty twenty four elections. So we have most of the candidates in front of us.
0: Yes, as of Friday, December fifteenth at three oh nine p.m. Okay. Time so stamped. Two hours and fifty one minutes left for whoever decides to run in there.
2: One hour and fifty one minutes.
0: Sorry, you are correct. <laughs> okay. So now we're we're we have the list in front of us, actually, and there's a lot of names on here. So we're going to talk through this a little bit by bit.
2: Yep. So I think we can skip over the presidential election only because that's not really a local race that we're covering. But yes, but barring some sort of coronary infarction, I think it will be Joe <laughs> Biden for the Democratic Party and Donald J. Trump for the Republican Party okay you know what
0: if that happens i will say that you you called it
2: hot take i called it (laughs) um but no i want to talk about mostly our local representatives we do have some federal races that are interesting okay um the the first one and the the main federal race that we'll be looking at is the race for the house of representatives district 7 which for many many years has been held by republican david rouser in fact two years ago in the uh, 2022 midterm elections, we sort of (sighs) joked that the Democratic Party had a primary to see who would lose to David Rouser. And that is no disrespect to the Democratic candidates. We had them all in here, here in the WHQR studios. They all were passionate, they were all engaged, they brought good ideas to the table. What they didn't bring to the table was multiple terms of incumbency and a war chest as big as all outdoors
0: oh i see
2: david rouser is very well entrenched and his district which does cover downtown wilmington okay also covers many many rural agrarian areas which tend to lean moderately to heavily republican
0: oh so he has us but he also has a lot of red
2: yes and it's worth noting david rouser has delivered on one of the most important facets of our local economy which is the beach uh, which requires enormous amounts of federal funding to to keep it in place because <laughs> to given, keep, given
0: keep the beach in place
2: given the whims of nature our beach would be somewhere else
0: at the bottom of the ocean
2: well it would be further south or further north the currents would push it around
0: So that's why we have the massive amounts of money that go into huge beach renourishment projects.
2: Yes. And it and it requires some sharp elbows in committee in Capitol Hill to make sure that that funding comes to us. Mm, And David Rosser has delivered that year after year. So whatever else you think about any of his other policies that has made him quite popular with a lot of people. Okay. Okay. So whether or not his stance on the 2020 election on abortion or any other hot button issues, we're going to see. So I'm not calling the race. I'm just saying, that is a difficult race.
0: Okay, and it's not just him running for District 7. There are no one, there's no one in the Libertarian Party, there's no one in the Green Party, but there is a Democrat. Yes. Marlando D. Pridgen.
2: Yes, Um, and we look forward to having them in the studio to hear from them because at the end of the day, our job is just to tell you who the candidate is, what their policies are, how they plan to represent you, and you can decide. Yes. Yes, because remember, our district... um, is or at least new Hanover county is thoroughly unaffiliated it's a plurality the most the biggest no one has 50 percent, but the biggest single group of voters in our area are unaffiliated voters
0: oh i didn't know that
2: yep so it's always a toss-up
0: okay okay now i've got a little bit of a personal question here um gre stands for green party Yes. and this is on our this is they're gonna be on the official ballot
2: yes there are green party candidates uh, last year, the Democratic Party in North Carolina sued to keep the Green Party off of the ballot. Um, we can have some links to that. I do want to go all the way back down the wormhole, rabbit hole of that lawsuit. But in a real politics sense, Green Party candidates are you know, very concerned with the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the whole, that's going to pull votes away from the Democratic Party. Not exclusively, but that's who is going to hurt. Re- Republicans are not going to be hurt that badly by a Green or by Party a Green candidate.
0: Party. Okay.
2: All right. So next up... Um, we will do our best to cover the governor's race, but everyone is going to be wanting to talk to the governor. And this is a broad field.
0: My goodness. There there's... are a
2: lot of people. Um, Josh Stein, who is currently the attorney general, is the presumed winner of the Democratic primary. Of course, you never know. But he is a well-known figure. He's um, and He's got a lot of momentum. Mm-hmm. So, again, don't, no disrespect to the other candidates, but I think that is who uh, will come out on top in the primary, which is very soon, by the way. I believe voting is in March, and the voting starts in February.
0: Oh, wow. So
2: soon. And if you're if you're thinking to yourself, I don't remember it being that soon, it's because it wasn't in 2022. Because there was a lawsuit that pushed the primary all the way into uh, late spring.
0: I was going to say, I don't remember voting in February. Because you didn't. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well... We're going to. Wow. That means we have a lot of (laughs) stuff to put on the website soon. We
2: do. The Republican field for governor is a little, I think, a little bit more of uh, an open question.
0: Yeah, It's yeah. These three names here, Dale Falwell, Bill Graham and our current lieutenant governor, Mark Robinson. Yes,
2: I think uh, William Graham is probably the least or Mark Graham um, as he goes by is probably the least well-known candidate. uh, But I still think he has a chance to sort of get in there and, and position himself. Dale Falwell. Uh, is our treasurer, mm. and has really positioned himself as a more classic um, fiscal conservative Republican.
0: Okay, so is he trying? Do you think he's trying to separate himself a little bit from Mark Robinson? Yeah,
2: he's called Mark Robinson out on comments that Fowler has said are, um, you know, anti-Semitic. Specifically, he's he's drilled down on that. Mm. But in general, he has he has pointed to Mark Robinson's. Um, you know, incendiary rhetoric and saying that, you know, he's presenting himself as like a calm, cool, collected accountant who can keep government money safe.
0: Okay, gotcha.
2: Um, and and I don't think that Mark Robinson would disagree with that. Mark Robinson, in the, in the sense that he is very concerned with cultural issues. Yes, um, yes. He's, he, and we, we do not have time to go down the memory road with him, but he has said some uh, truly bigoted things. Um, that has been very difficult for members of his own party to defend. He has recently gone after his own party.
0: Oh, um, okay.
2: Claiming that, you know, uh, Jesus Christ will return to the earth and um, judge them. I'm paraphrasing here.
0: Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, it was strike down his enemies.
2: Yes. Uh, so Robinson is is not afraid of fiery rhetoric, and he's, uh, he's 100% engaged in the culture war. The question is, and that will, you know, again, like it or not, that will resonate with some conservatives. Mm-hmm. The question is, is can he paint himself as a competent governor, literally someone who can govern the entire state? Um, or is he more effective as an orator who can speak for for the sort of right side of the right leading okay. side of the Republican Party?
0: So quick question, then. What does he currently do as lieutenant governor?
2: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, not as much as you as, as I initially thought. Um, He's a member of the Council of State, which helps make, you know, state-level decisions. Okay. He is in charge when the governor leaves. Um, that's one of the things people have um, criticized him for. Uh, he he basically did a publicity stunt one day when uh, current Democratic Governor Roy Cooper left. Okay. Um, but the lieutenant governor's situation is interesting. It is not like president and vice president where you run on a slate.
0: That's why I was curious. Yes.
2: He would be a curious pairing with Roy Cooper. <laughs> yeah. Um, so lieutenant governor is independently elected. He does have jobs. He does have a lot of work to do, um, but I think the most important role of lieutenant governor is that it helps to begin to get you into a spotlight. That's okay. just uh, from a crass political point of view. Yes. Um. That's the value of it from the horse race of politics side.
0: Okay. Now I'm scrolling down. Holy for Jolies. That is a lot of names for North Carolina lieutenant governor.
2: Yeah, because you kind of get to be the prince in waiting. Um, I do not. I'm just being honest with you. Given our newsroom's capacity, I don't know if we'll be able to talk to all of these people. Um, we're going to have some conversations with our statewide partners, our other public radio stations, about how we might handle this, because it this person will be on the these all of these people will be on the ballot rather for in for the primary. Um, I mean, there's
0: just there's 11 people for the Republican Party by itself.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think a lot of our energy in the coming months is going to be. Um, in addition to Rouser and our state reps, is going to be looking at the Board of Commissioners and the Board of Education. Yeah, so let's
0: Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's
2: talk about that. I'm flipping, you can hear me flipping through the pages and pages and pages of people who have filed.
0: I'm scrolling.
2: Um, There are some judicial races I hope that we can look at this year because that won't be in the primary um, because there's one candidate from each party in some of these. Um, This is kind of a a bone of contention for some people. Some people are quite displeased that uh, judges have become... Uh, partisan. Really? They weren't always. Hmm. Um
0: So do you mean partisan is in how they're quite literally listed under yeah, a party? So,
2: yeah, judges run as a as a Republican or a Democrat oh, or or Libertarian or Green Party. Um that brings us down to uh State Senate District Seven. This is um this is another tough battle for Democrats. Okay. Um for a number of reasons. It's uh it's a swing we are a swing state, we're a purple state. So both parties and associated PACs and super PACs put a lot of money into this race. Mm-hmm. Last year, Democrat Marsha Morgan ran against incumbent Republican Michael Lee. Over $3 million was spent. So if you remember a previous CFR where we talked about campaign finance, yep. we're talking about candidates raising you know, $100,000 and that being a big deal for city for City Hall. But yes. this is an order of magnitude higher. <laughs> it's also tough because the way Senate districts work the law requires them to be as much as possible within county boundaries, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, the math doesn't quite math for New Hanover County. There's just a few too many people, which means some part of New Hanover County has to be carved out and be made part of a different Senate district.
0: Can people see that online? People,
2: people can see that online. Um, and our colleague Johanna Still at the Assembly did a story about what's called the notch.
0: Is that what that is? It's called
2: The Notch. Yeah. It's, it gets its own cute name. Now, The Notch has moved all around. Um, and I will say this year looks like the most extreme version of gerrymandering, but both sides have gerrymandered it because they have to. Yes. So The Notch has been at one point up in Castle Hayne, in the northern part of New Hanover County okay. in districts that lean conservative and Republican. Yes. That obviously benefited Democrats. Because yes. you're taking Republican voters and shooing them over <laughs> into, into, ours. into Senator Bill Raven's district, which is uh, includes Brunswick County, a heavily red county. Okay. Now, the current notch is carved right out of the heart of downtown Wilmington, which are some of the most Democratic-leaning uh, precincts in New Hanover County.
0: Now, do we know which Senate district those people are going to have to yep, vote for?
2: Yep. So there are people in downtown Wilmington who will be voting for what looks on a map Pretty much like the state senator from Brunswick County, okay, and and rural counties pass that way, so and that is blood red, right? It is heavily, heavily Republican. So that handful of Democratic voters dropped into Senator Raven's district um, won't make a lick of difference. Won't it? Won't amount to a hill of beans. Oh wow! So this is a tough race for Democrats. That notch will make it even tougher. But I was
0: going to say specifically because now that that group of people has been pulled out now.
2: Yes. So there but there is another twist in this story. Um so Michael Lee is again running for re-election. There is a Democratic candidate running, David Hill. Um and so he won't be going head to head with Michael Lee cuz there's a third candidate.
0: Oh, I'm seeing it, Libertarian Party.
2: John Evans. Not to be confused with WECT anchor in front of the show, John Evans.
0: That was what popped into my head. Yes. Okay, thank you. So
2: John will be getting calls. For, like, this whole time about, like...
0: Hey, congratulations! First, I didn't
2: know you were a Libertarian. Two, I didn't know uh, you were running for office. It <laughs> seems weird. Um, so, if you go back through the archives of Star News, you can see uh, Evans used to write um, commentary for them from the on issues from the point of view of the Libertarian Party. Okay. So, so he's so been... He's the been. Cha- Yeah, he's been a chair of the party. He's, he's a long-time well-established Libertarian. The question is, will he pull votes from the left or the right or both? It kind of depends on what flavor of libertarianism is and we're talking about this in the newsroom. <laughs> you know I know libertarians who are, for example, staunchly against gun control, which would land them sort of in the Republican camp. but they're also strongly against criminalizing drugs and restricting abortions.
0: Don't tell me what to do.
2: Don't tell me what to do um, And their their pushback against uh, you know what many see as unfair drug regulation and what many see as a violation of women's health rights when it comes to abortion control, would pl- sort of put them more on the left. So it's, they have an eclectic package of beliefs mm. that are basically motivated by, yeah, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> um, so it's not black and white. It's not clear. Depending on what issues Evans f- focuses on and how much he gets out his message, uh, it's a, it'll be an interesting factor to see who how he sort of impacts that race. Because just to be honest, a libertarian is not going to win. Yes. I will, I will, I will put that on, on tape and say, if John Evans wins... State Senate District Seven. I will eat my hat. I do have a hat at home. I don't usually wear one of the new year, but I have one, and I will eat it um, with Worcestershire sauce.
0: All right. Yeah. Well, well, do currently do we have any idea since he's been a member of this party for a long time? Do we have any idea what kind of flavor he has been thus far?
2: It seems to be small government, keep the government out of stuff. Okay. Type of stuff. So along fiscal lines, mm. um, you know, we we have a much more polarized environment, and there are a lot more social and cultural issues that are even if there's no pending legislation in effect on the ballot. Okay, yeah. So remains to be seen. All right, moving on. I think we gotta talk about um, County Commissioner and School Board. So first up, let's talk about the Board of Commissioner's race. So we have uh, three seats are open. Um, Dane Scalise, who was appointed to fill the seat of Deb Hayes after she tragically passed away. Mm. Uh, Bill Rivenbark, who is the current chair of the board. They're both Republicans. And Jonathan Barfield, a long time. I believe he's the senior member of the Board of Commissioners as a Democrat. So they are all running for effectively re-election. Technically, Dane was appointed. He wasn't elected, but we'll just call it re-election. Yes. Okay. Three people that we know, we've already seen them on the commission. We kind of know what their politics are. Incumbents. They're incumbents. Yeah. Okay. And so from the Republican side, um, we've got one newcomer to this race, John Hinnant, who ran WDI in downtown Wilmington. He ran a restaurant. We know uh, quite a bit about him because he ran for state race against Dead Butler two years ago,
0: yes. So we, we know spoke John.
2: We know John. We've spoken with him. We kind of know where he's coming from. Um, we will obviously interview him again. But he is a known person. He's not a surprise Dark Horse candidate. Okay. Um, and then for the Democratic side, we've got Jonathan Barfield who's running for re-election. Stephanie Walker, who we know as a Board of Education member. That's Stephanie Walker. So Stephanie Walker, uh, having rolled off the Board of Education, is now running for Board of Commissioners. And Cassidy Santaguida, I'm guessing at the last name.
0: I think it's Santa Guida.
2: Thank you. Let's go with that. All right. (laughs)
0: Cassidy Santaguida.
2: So we, I don't know much about Cassidy. Mm -hmm. I look forward to talking to her. Um, She appears to be younger, which is something we have seen both parties try to do desperately.
0: Is bring in younger candidates. Is my
2: God get someone younger? No (laughs) offense to the older people like me. I think I am now on the wrong side of... In the age divide, (laughs) but I can say both parties are actively recruiting younger people because it is a problem um, of trying to get candidates that resonate with younger voters. If you're 25 and the candidates is three times your age, literally three times your age, it's gonna be. hmm, Yeah.
0: Yes, that is true. That is true.
2: true. All right, so that's Board of Commissioners. That'll be an interesting one. Uh, Now
0: we've got another interesting one.
2: Board of Education. All right. This is the spiciest one. Historically, over the last couple years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So just a quick recap for our last Board of Ed vote. There was a GOP sweep for the Board of Ed. So now there's a whole bunch of candidates here again. Let's go through these.
2: Okay, so we have three open seats and both sides have more than three candidates. So we will see a, uh, well, we'll see a primary. For the Board of Commissioners, it's three and three.
0: OK, so no yes. primary
2: for Board of Commissioners, but for Board of Education, we're going to have to narrow the field to three candidates.
0: Mm. So for the Democratic Party, Judy Justice is running, who we know has already previously been a school board member. Tim Merrick is also running. Then there's Cynthia Munoz and Jerry Jones Jr.
2: Yep. And, uh, and Tim Merrick is uh, has worked with the New York County Democratic Party. And so we know a little bit about him. Um, I know almost nothing about Cynthia getting I'm looking forward to getting to know more about her. Uh, and Jerry Jones owns a bookstore here in the Wilmington area. Um, I believe he's a newcomer to politics, unless I missed him somehow. But it looks like Cynthia and Jerry are both sort of newcomers to this. Okay. On the Republican side, um, we've got Kimberly Murphy. She is the wife of Dante Murphy, who's mm. uh, a, a reverend and ran the, the Pender County NAACP at some point. She's running as a Republican. And th- just a reminder, like you, people sometimes make assumptions about um, you know people's race and which party they're going to run for. Yes. Um, But we've heard increasingly from black voters in New Hanover County and elsewhere that they they feel in some cases disaffected with the Democratic Party. Um, So I would be less and less surprised to see people of color running on the the Republican Party. Okay. Uh, We've got Aubrey Toole. I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. Um, She's actually um, been with the New Hanover County Republican Party. I believe she was the secretary or is the secretary. And we've seen her speak at the call of the audience at meetings. Yes. Uh, David Perry, this is an interesting one. Speaking of libertarians, David Perry was a libertarian candidate several times and is now running as a registered Republican. Perry raised uh, a lot of concerns that he had with how the school handled uh, masking and opening and closing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know if those will still be motivating issues because I I mean, for better or worse, the pandemic is over, I would say for better, by large. Yes. <laughs> um, but again, we've seen candidates in the past that were that got very into politics around the time of the height of the COVID pandemic because they were against masking procedures or vaccinations or school closures and kind of faded away when those things stopped being issues. Yes. So I don't know what other issues uh, Perry will bring to the race. Uh, Nikki Bascombe, I don't know anything about. Looking forward to getting to know Nikki and hearing what she has to add. And Natasha, too, we do know. Yes. Uh, we have seen Natasha many times at call to the audience, at school board meetings. Uh, she was once removed um, because she had more to say than, I think, time allowed. Mm. She was a former employee of the city of Wilmington, so that was kind of a bone of contention because she was, you know, she had some very strong opinions that didn't quite line up with the city of Wilmington's stated policy on, on how to handle COVID. Um, the city handled that, I'd say, fairly gracefully. They were like... Yes, she's our employee, but she's also a private citizen and she has her own yeah. She has the right to express her beliefs. So that's what we're looking at for the Board of Education.
0: So this looks like this is going to be a pretty what I say contentious, is that the right word to use? If for this race.
2: If 2022 is any blueprint and I th- I think it will be mm. because the Republicans did so well. They swept the Board of Education. I think that that playbook worked. If I was in charge of the Republican Party, I don't imagine I would tweak it too much. Mm. Um, But remains to be seen. I think you will see cultural war issues. I think you will see people focusing on some of those same talking points, um, especially given what some of those candidates have said at Call to the Audience meetings. Yeah. I also think that there is probably some chance the Democrats will get kind of a bounce effect. Um, You know, policy is important, you you know, charisma is important to the candidate, but voter turnouts the thing that I
0: was just about to say voter turnout
2: and voter turnout um, for this is a presidential election as opposed to the midterm election last time, which means more people in general on both parties, all parties turn out, more people turn out. Um, And so if Trump is on the ballot in 2024, which seems like a reasonably safe bet, that is likely to motivate Democrats, um, even if they're not huge fans of Biden. You know, polling has shown that they will show up to vote against Trump
0: in some capacity,
2: more so than, you know, like a strong vote of confidence in Biden. They just will vote against Trump. OK, Um. so all of those things will factor into because you're at the polls anyway.
0: That's true. And
2: you're just working your way down the ballot. It's also, you know, I've also heard from Democrats who didn't vote in last uh, in the 2022 election who said, oh, wow, I, I didn't think about it. And now I really will. And again, because we do have partisan school board elections. Even if you're a total newcomer to politics, you're kind of running on the record of your fellow party mates. Mm-hmm. So if you're a Republican, you're kind of you kind of have to take the benefits and the negatives of what your party has done in power for the last two years. Hmm. And if you're a Democrat, uh, you might get some boost from people who are like, "Hey, we got pushed out of power; we got to take it back." Okay. So it's going to be a comp. There's a lot of complicated sort of psychology going into how and why people will vote.
0: Well, do we have any like, is there is there like a special sneak preview that we can tell our listeners for when they can start expecting elections coverage from us
2: well we definitely hope to have some coverage of the prime the race that will have primaries in february okay um and that'll mean interviews and, and maybe some other uh content to sort of help you get everything you need to know to vote primary elections are interesting in our region because we have so many unaffiliated voters who can pick one or the other primary to weigh in
0: Because they're registered as unaffiliated. Because
2: they're unaffiliated. So many people often think of primaries as party stalwarts picking who they want to represent them. Yes. But it also allows unaffiliated voters to weigh in. Mm. And so in some cases, that moderates the language of the primaries. In some cases, it doesn't. Interesting to see how that plays out.
0: Okay. well, we'll be back in February with our new content like and subscribe
2: hot new content
0: hit the hit this hit the button so smash you get the, smash the button <laughs> well ben thank you for being in the studio with me this weekend for flipping through a whole bunch of pages to get through these names
2: we really did but i was happy to do it
0: thank you so much for listening to the keep here rundown check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week if you have any questions comments concerns or just general feedback feel free to get in touch you can shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org. Or you can find me on Twitter at CamiReports. Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you next week.